So I'll give you a little historical data. Uh, February 27th, 1977, Ebenezer Baptist Church, Plymouth, Pennsylvania, Pastor Ephraim Hedinger. I was baptized on that day, along with Marie and a very dear friend of mine, and him and I, and along with two other men and their wives, went on to uh, establish Grace Bible Church in Wilkesbury, Pennsylvania. Seems like such a long time ago, but it's so fresh in my mind, the memory of my baptism. I heard this paradox by uh, John MacArthur in one of his sermons. He says, and it is when you think about it, the world is full of baptized non-Christians and unbaptized Christians. And that seems a bit odd, doesn't it? So the message this morning is the biblical doctrine of baptism. For some, it's an unknown doctrine. They really don't know what the Bible teaches about it or they've been taught wrongly. Some have called it the forgotten doctrine because it doesn't have a prominent place today in the contemporary church. Maybe we can call it the, as some people would see it, the optional doctrine. Yeah, I might get baptized, I might not, you know. But it is not optional according to the Bible. Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20. And Jesus came and spoke to them saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. Make disciples is the main command in this passage of Scripture. Baptizing and teaching are the two procedures associated with the accomplishment of that command, reaching people for Christ, baptizing them, and discipling them. Every use of the word disciple in the New Testament refers to a self-aware, willful follower of a teacher. Disciples were followers of various teachers. It is following Jesus and obeying what he has commanded, including being baptized as an outward profession of faith in Jesus Christ, makes you a disciple of Jesus. The New Testament knows nothing of an unbaptized Christian, and yet we have so many Christians who have not been baptized. So I put this up here for you consider a person submitting to Christian baptism is being baptized into Jesus Christ. And I'll have more to say about that, not today, but perhaps next week. What does it mean to be baptized into Jesus Christ? And making a commitment to him as Lord and Savior and to, to declaring to others that they will endeavor by the grace of God to adhere faithfully to the lifestyle expected of Christ's disciples. And that's what they do at their baptism. F.B. Meyer says, The word of God is not given to be admired for its beauty or studied for its detail. It is given to be obeyed. There is no blessing in hearing and knowing it apart from doing it. 
It was our Lord himself who said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So I want to speak a little bit about the, the background for baptism. When and where did the ceremony rite, whatever you want to call it, of baptism originate? And actually it has a pre-Christian origin. So it predated Christianity. Baptism as a rite of initiation was practiced among many different groups in the ancient world. The heathen baptisms were the mo- for the most part were simply ceremonial purifications and initiation rites. And the association of water with spiritual cleanliness or cleansing was practiced in ancient Sumer. That's in southern Mesopotamia, modern-day Iraq. In ancient Sumer, was one of the first urban civilizations in the world. Dr. Merrill Tenney, the editor of the Zondervan Encyclopedia of the Bible, said, Baptism as a rite of immersion was not begun by Christians, but was taken by them from Jewish and pagan forms. Since early Christianity was a part of the Judaism of Jesus' day, it is without question that baptism in today's church was originally Jewish. Further evidence comes from scholars William Lesor and David Daub, who tell us of the early church's practice of baptism by self-immersion after the custom of the Jews, after the custom of the Jews. And what we do know is that the Jews practiced baptism for proselytes that would be Gentiles who wanted to come into among the Israelites and join the community of faith there. And they, they practiced this in and were baptized in a mikvah, a mikvah. I'll, I'll share a little bit more about that. It's interesting that debates on the subject of proselyte baptism are recorded between the different rabbinical schools of Shammai and Hillel who predated Jesus, but their followers were contemporaries of Jesus. The the Hillel school taught a more liberal, progressive interpretation of the law. For instance, they believed that a man could be divorced for almost any reason. The Shammai school, rabbinical school, was very conservative. A man could be divorced only on the grounds of adultery. It's interesting to me that Paul, the Apostle Paul, was a student of Gamaliel. Gamaliel came from the Hillite school. So he had a uh, less conservative interpretation of the law, but Paul was no liberal. Paul was all in, in obedience to the law. You might say that the Shammai school was the, was, were the militant hardliners of that day. The school of Shammai stressed circumcision as the point of transition from a Gentile becoming a proselyte into Judaism. Hillel considered baptism was most important because it portrayed spiritual cleansing and the beginning of, of a new life. It's interesting also that a Gentile proselyte, a man to Judaism in that day, and this eventually won out, had to be circumcised, he had to be baptized, and he had to offer a sacrifice. Those three things were required. And proselyte baptism among the Jews is believed by some to have been a cleansing from the defilements 
of paganism, as the pagans were, were coming into Judaism. And we have the biblical roots of, of this idea of washings and initiations into certain things uh, found in the Old Testament teachings of ritual cleansings in water of both of people and of things that were deemed ceremoniously unclean. The Jews practiced the washings to consecrate someone to a special office or a special function. Leviticus 8 and verse 6. It says, Then Moses brought Aaron and his sons and washed them with water. So this was a ceremonial cleansing, a ritual cleansing. On the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur, in Leviticus 16, verse 23, it says, Then Aaron shall come into the tabernacle of meeting, shall take off the linen garments which he put on when he went into the holy place, and leave them there. And he shall wash his body with water in a holy place, put on his garments, come out and offer his burnt offerings and the burnt offerings of the people, and make atonement for himself and the people. We also know from the Old Testament, you know, defilement and contact with the dead. There's a whole lot of reasons why they, why they had to be washed before they would participate in the functions uh, uh, of the Israelite community. Hebrews 6.2 mentions this. Therefore, leaving the discussion of the elementary principles of Christ, let us go on to perfection, not laying again the foundation of repentance from dead works and of faith toward God, of the doctrine of baptisms. Ritual washings is what it means there. Of laying on of hands, resurrection of the dead, and eternal judgment. Mark chapter 7, verse 2. Then the Pharisees and some of the scribes came together to him, Jesus, having come from Jerusalem. And when they saw some of his disciples eat bread with being defiled, that is, with unwashed hands, they found fault. You could also look, we looked at Hebrews, so I read Hebrews 6. But you can look, at, look in Hebrews 9, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 6. And remember, Hebrews is just a lot of allusions to the Old Testament. But Hebrews chapter 9 and verse 6. Now when these things had been thus prepared, the priests always went into the first part of the tabernacle performing the services. But... Into the second part, the most holy place, the high priest went alone, once a year, not without blood, which he offered for himself and for the people's sins committed in ignorance. The Holy Spirit indicating this, that the way into the holiness of all was not yet made manifest while the first tabernacle was still standing. It was symbolic for the present time in which both gifts and sacrifices are offered, which cannot make him who performed the service perfect in regard to the conscience, concerned only with foods and drinks, and a lot of these people, that's what they were concerned about, various washings, baptisms, ritual washings, and fleshly ordinances imposed until the time of the Reformation. So this was very common among the Jews. And the proselyte baptism and even Jewish baptisms for ceremonial cleansings were, were accomplished in a mikvah. I mentioned this. It was by self-immersion. Nobody baptized them. It was self-immersion of the full body into water for cleansing. And the word mikvah, I'm going to show you a picture here. You, got, you see the picture here. This is a, 
This is a picture of a mikvah on the top of Masada. And it, it's literally like a swimming pool. It's a very big mikvah. And the word mikvah literally means gathering of waters. The second picture here, this one here of a mikvah, almost looks like a baptistry, you know, that you'd see somewhere. And, but this one is actually on the Temple Mount in, in Jerusalem. And the building of the mikvah, the living water, was so important in Israel that it was set to take precedence over the construction of a synagogue because you really had to be clean to go into a synagogue. And the use of water for cleansing was symbolically used in Ezekiel chapter 36. I'm going to begin reading in verse 24. I will take you from among the nations, gather you out of all the countries, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. And that will be Israel's final cleansing. Goes on to say that they're not going to defile themselves anymore with idols once this cleansing takes place, nor with detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will deliver them from all their dwelling places in which they have sinned and will cleanse them. They shall be my people, and I will be their God when Israel comes to repentance. At the time that Jesus was baptizing and John the Baptist was baptizing, there was a community of Jews known as the Essenes. And they inhabited the Dead Sea community in, in Qumran. They stressed repentance for cleansing. John the Baptist would no doubt have had contact with them and been familiar with them. But in their manual of discipline of the Essenes, it says, These may not enter into the water to be permitted to touch the purity of holy men, for they will not be cleansed by that water unless they have turned from their wickedness, for uncleanness clings to all the transgressors of the word. So they understood that just the cleansing, just the act of being washed, didn't really, really mean that a person was repentant. So then you have John the Baptist, or we can call him John the Baptizer. The baptisms of John by John were, were, were not something new. Nobody trying to influence the Jews would, would introduce an entirely new practice. It would not be accepted. His baptism signified a cleansing from sin on the basis of repentance in preparation for Messiah's coming, he was the forerunner, the voice crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Jeremiah Jeter said this, John's mission was to prepare the way of the Messiah by awakening an expectation of his coming, making ready a people to receive him, and introducing him, Jesus, into his public ministry. And it says in Matthew chapter 3, verse 1, in those days came John the Baptist. What? Preaching preaching in the wilderness of Judea, which is where he did his baptisms. After an Israelite was baptized by John, the repentant Israelite was then expected to conform his life to match his profession. And really, when we baptize people, that's what our expectation is, right? Conform your life to the profession that you are now making in your public baptism. 
And that was evident in John's demand of the Pharisees to produce what? Fruit in keeping with what? Repentance. Repentance. So in Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, we have the baptism of Jesus. You can look at that if you wish. Matthew 3, 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to John at the Jordan to be baptized by him. And John tried to prevent him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you are coming to me. But Jesus answered and said to him, Permit it to be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he allowed him. When he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and alighting upon him. And suddenly a voice came from heaven saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. John the Baptist was of the tribe of Levi. This means that he was a descendant of Aaron and the Levites who offered sacrifices for sin and functioned in the presentation of sacrifices to the Lord. And I think John's baptism could be seen in that light as a priestly recognition of the perfect sacrifice for sin. Jesus was the spotless Lamb of God who needed no repentance. But he submitted to baptism by John to publicly identify himself as the Messiah and John recognized him. As the promised Savior. In John 1.29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him. And what did he say? Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Isaiah 53.11, he shall see, that's the Father, the labor, the travail of his soul. That's Jesus going through the crucifixion process. And be satisfied. By his knowledge my righteous servant shall justify many, for he shall bear their iniquities. Substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. So the question then is, why was Jesus baptized? Well, he tells us, as Israel's Messiah, he had to fulfill all the righteous requirements of the law. Secondly, Jesus' baptism, I believe, was his anointing into his messianic office, and it marked the formal beginning of his ministry. Dr. H.I. Ironside, the repentant part of the nation of Israel at that time, when they were coming to John to be baptized, admitted by their baptism that they deserved to die as violators of the divine law. Interestingly, the Lord Jesus, who knew no sin, took his place with them in baptism as the pledge that he was ready to go down into death for them. Matthew 3.16, it says this, when he had been baptized, Jesus came up immediately from the water, and behold, the heavens were opened to him, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove, and that voice came from heaven, saying what? This is, seeing if you're paying attention, this is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. That pronouncement by the Father is a combination of two Old Testament scriptures in shortened form. 
Psalm 2, verse 7, Psalm 2, 7. I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. And Isaiah 42, in verse 1, Behold my spirit, whom I uphold, my elect, in whom my soul delights, in whom I am well pleased. I have put my spirit upon him, and he will bring forth justice to the Gentiles. Psalm 2 is a psalm about the messianic king. Isaiah 42, which is also quoted there in that passage, the words of the Father, marks the beginning of the four servant songs of Isaiah, culminating with Isaiah chapter 53. So the one baptized by John and acknowledged by the Father, this is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased, was the King who will one day rule the earth. But first, he had to suffer. He had to go down and be immersed into death. Not for any sin of his own, because he never sinned. But for all of us who have gone astray. Jesus willingly took his part in death for our sake. Isaiah said, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And by his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Listen, if you're here today and you don't know Christ as your Savior, you will have to pay for your sins. One day, you will stand before the thrice holy God and you will have to give an account for your sins. If you, if you trust Christ as the one spotless Lamb of God who God the Father sent to take your place, to be the substitute for your sins, you'll be saved. You'll be saved. So who then are the proper subjects of Christian baptism? Who should be baptized? Another way of answering. Simple answer. Every person who has received Christ as Savior. Every person who has bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus Christ as Savior. And that excludes infants. Salvation occurs at the moment of a person's faith in Christ. And no simultaneous or further acts are required for salvation. It's faith alone in Jesus Christ. And in Scripture, the Apostle Paul disconnected baptism from the gospel. You know the chapter there in 1 Corinthians 15 that deals with the gospel in, in you know, clear terms. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel, the good news, which I preached to you, which you also received, in which you stand, by which you also are saved, if you hold fast the word that I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. Spurious, spurious conversion. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, 
that he was buried, and that he arose again the third day according to the scriptures. There's no mention of baptism in that passage in association with the gospel. The three elements of the gospel are the death, burial, and what? The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, all of which are pictured when a person makes a baptismal profession of faith. Romans 6, we'll get, we'll get into the symbolic use there of baptism in Romans 6. But in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, again, Paul disconnects the baptism, baptism from the gospel. He says, 1 Corinthians 1.14, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus. If baptism was essential for salvation, why would Paul not have made it a priority? Lest anyone should say that I baptized in my own name, yea, I also baptized the household of Stephanus, besides I do not know whether I baptized any other, anyone else. And then he clarifies this, for Christ did not send me to baptize, but to preach the gospel. And there's the disconnect. Not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ should be made of no effect. Now that's not to say that baptism is not important. There were others who did the baptisms. Paul had a very divinely given apostolic mission. And, and it was preaching the gospel. And he had limited time to do that. And he said, woe is me if I don't what? If I don't preach the gospel. He was going to fulfill that commission. Cost him his life eventually. So Paul didn't really baptize him, just a few. But as far as we know it, Jesus didn't baptize anybody. We don't know it. John 4.1, the record says, Scripture, Therefore when the Lord knew that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and, and baptized more disciples than John, and here's the editorial comment, though Jesus himself did not baptize, but his disciples. So he left that work to him. Now there is a teaching known as baptismal regeneration. And that teaching insists that you must be baptized in order to be saved. I think it makes the cross of Christ of no effect because it denies the sufficiency of Christ's atoning work on the basis of what? Grace. Unmerited favor. By what? Faith alone. Galatians 3.25, Therefore the law was our tutor or schoolmaster to bring us to Christ that we might be justified by faith. But after faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all the sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, metaphorically, have put on Christ, there's no mention of baptism there in relation to justification. There is no mention of baptism there in relation to sonship. It's used metaphorically of receiving Christ, being immersed into Christ. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, being justified freely by His grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth as a propitiation by his blood, what? Through faith. Not through anything else. Through faith. And you have many examples in Scripture. Philip preaching in Samaria. It says in Acts 8.12, When they believed Philip, 
As he preached the things concerning the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, both men and women were baptized. So this again points to the reality that baptism is for believers when they believe. It also says then Simon himself, Simon himself also believed when he was baptized. He continued with Philip and was amazed seeing the miracles and the signs which were done. And it didn't turn out so good for him. The Ethiopian eunuch was saved and baptized. Acts 8, 36. And as they went down the wall, road, there came the water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water. What hinders me from being baptized? Then Philip said, If you what? Here's the requirement. If you believe with all your heart, you may. And he answered said, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. That's the point of faith. That's the moment of salvation. So then Philip commanded the chariot to stand still. And both Philip and eunuch went down into the water and he baptized him. Acts 9.18 Paul, Paul believed, he was saved, and he was baptized. Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, verses 44 through 47, believed and was baptized. It says in verse 46 of Acts 10, while Peter was still speaking these words, God taking the gospel to the Gentiles, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who had heard, and those of the circumcision who believed, those are Gentiles or Jews, were astonished as many as came with Peter because the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles. So the Jews were astonished that the Gentiles received the Holy Spirit, just like the Holy Spirit came upon them at Pentecost. It says, For they heard them speak with tongues and magnify God. Then Peter answered, Can anyone forbid water that these should not be baptized who have received the Holy Spirit? They were saved, just as we have. So they were saved first, and he commanded them to be baptized in the name of the Lord. The Philippian jailer in Acts 16. What did he ask? What must I do to be saved? I mean, that's as clear a question as you can get. And what, what, what was the reply? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved, and your household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him. And the household wasn't saved because the, you know, <laughs> the Philippian jailer believed. They'd be saved when they believed. Then he spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. That's the preaching. Then he took them the same hour of the night and washed their stripes. And immediately he and all his family were baptized. So it follows salvation. Believe and be baptized is always the order. In no instance was the order reversed. So only those who have believed in Christ for their salvation should be baptized. A.N. Arnold says, The gospel addresses itself to individuals, intelligent and responsible. It requires intelligent assent. It demands personal submission. All must be voluntary. It rebukes all dependence upon a pious ancestry. Matthew 3.9 insists on an individual experience of the new birth. Individual John 3, 3 through 5, it recognizes as subjects of the king of Zion and citizens of the kingdom of God only those who know, love, and obey the truth. John chapter 18, or at least endeavor 
to be obedient to the truth. Although we all fall short, right? Thank God for his continued grace and mercy in forgiving us. So baptism began on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. We read the scripture this morning. And in the first century, most of the converts were from Judaism at that time. And baptism immediately followed a profession of faith. Those early converts. And as a church, we desire to be as careful as we can be in order to make certain a person is saved before they are baptized. But we all should ensure that salvation is the requirement for baptism, not sanctification. Salvation is the requirement for baptism, not sanctification. Sanctification or salvation occurs in a moment. In a moment of time, at the point of faith, sanctification is a process. It's a process. Acts 2.41, Then those who gladly received his word, the preaching of the gospel, were baptized. And that same day, about 3,000 souls were added to the church, added to them. 3,000 people saved and baptized. And the argument, the old argument that that couldn't have been there. I mean, there were no facilities in Jerusalem to immerse 3,000 people on the day of Pentecost. And the inadequate water system, except the drinking pools, would not have been allowed to be used as baptistries. Those arguments have been totally negated by archaeological discoveries. Years ago, years ago, on the Temple Mount, the southern portion of the Temple Mount, they unearthed 48 mikvahs. And that was years ago. Many more have been discovered all over Jerusalem. Gordon Moyes said this, Then why this abundance of ritual baths in the houses built near the Temple Mount? A prerequisite for entering the Temple Mount was purification in a ritual bath. We know that many pilgrims lodge in hospices and public hostels, but the custom of renting rooms existed back then too. Imagine the attraction of a notice tacked up on a street corner where it phrased to the following effect, rooms for rent, reasonable rates, private mikvah on premises. He says, this is how I would explain the profusion of these baths. For many of the householders living near the Temple Mount made a living from renting out rooms. And he said, the cisterns uncovered in these buildings are huge, accommodating 150 square meters of water. And he says, what's more, we discovered five mikvahs in one single house. In Jerusalem, on the Temple Mount. Everett Ferguson, he wrote a really lengthy book, 975 pages, on baptism in the early church, history, theology, and liturgy in the first five centuries. 2009. So he he gives some succinct answers to some common questions. So I'll just close with this. Is there evidence for infant baptism? Is there evidence infant baptism existed before the second part of the second century? And he answers 
There is general agreement that there is no firm evidence for infant baptism before the latter part of the second century. I believe that's true. Does this mean that infant baptism didn't exist? He says, this fact does not mean that it did not occur, but it does mean that supporters of the practice have a considerable chronological gap to account for. A long gap to account for. Many replace the historical silence by appeal to theological or sociological considerations, but history is silent on that. And I think the silence speaks loudly. So why did, he was asked, did infant baptism emerge? And he says, the most plausible explanation for the origin of infant baptism is found in the emergency baptism of sick children expected to die soon so that they would be sure of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Because by that time, it was, it was seen as a, as a necessity. This is why the Roman Catholic Church baptizes infants. Question, when did it catch on and become the dominant understanding of baptism? He says there was a slow extension of baptizing babies as a precautionary measure. It was generally accepted, but questions continued to be raised about its propriety into the 5th century. It became the usual practice in the 5th and 6th centuries, baptizing infants. What was the mode of baptism in the early church? Question. The comprehensive survey answer of the evidence compiled in this study, and it is comprehensive, gives a basis for a fresh look at this subject and seeks to give coherence to the evidence while addressing anomalies. The Christian literary sources, backed by the secular word usage, Jewish ritual immersions, religious immersions, give an overwhelming support for full immersion as the normal action. Exceptions in cases of a lack of water and especially of sickbed baptism were made. Submersion was undoubtedly the case to the 5th century in the Greek East and only slightly less in the Latin West. Was this one, a change from an earlier practice, two, a selection out of options previously available, or three, a continuation of the practice of the first three centuries. It is the continuation of this study that the last, a conclusion of this study that the last interpretation best accords with available facts. Unless one has preconceived ideas about how an immersion would be performed, the literary art in archaeological evidence supports the conclusion that the early church baptized by immersion. So it's nothing new, you know, that we're, we're doing. It's nothing odd. It's nothing strange. And I wanted to preach this message because we're, we're going to have a baptism here in a few weeks. We're making preparations for that. You don't have to baptize to be saved. You don't have to be baptized by immersion to be saved. But the question is, if you are saved, have you been baptized? Are you willing to follow the Lord in, in what, there is no argument over Matthew 28, right? Go ye therefore in all the world and, and make disciples of all men, baptizing them. And the church has always done this. And it's a wonderful opportunity for a person, whether they're young 
or old who has come to faith in Jesus Christ to stand before a body of believers and to publicly declare that I understand I needed a Savior and Jesus was that Savior. And I, I am acknowledging Him as such and I want to walk in newness of life. I, I, I'm renouncing my old way of life and I want to walk in newness of life. So if you would like to discuss any of this with me, be more than happy to do that. If you have any questions regarding baptism or you have not submitted to Bible baptism, you know, believer's baptism, then I would encourage you to speak with me or one of the other elders here at the church. I think I'll spend probably one more message on this. You know, I want to get into the symbolism of baptism. I think that's really important. But that's it for today. Thank you for paying attention. I think I got you out on time. Five minutes early, so you owe me five. I, I keep a record here. So when people tell me you went too long, I say, eh, but I went a little short that day, this day. All right. You know, the sun came out. That's great, right? I think our baptism will, next, this baptism coming out, I think we're going to, we do it outside. So I'll, I'll wait for a real nice cold day. And we'll, we'll schedule it. Let's pray. Come outside, have some fellowship with us.